All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to the JuntoCast, a podcast on early American history. I'm Ken Owen, Associate Professor of History at the University of Illinois Springfield and Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy at the University of Missouri. This month on the podcast, we're going to be discussing the topic of political violence in early America, looking at numerous different examples of violence from the 17th, 18th and 19th century, and discussing how violence as a form of political action changed from Britain's colonial period through to the first years of the New Republic. As ever, I'm joined in today's podcast by Michael Hatton, visiting assistant professor of history at Knox College, contributing editor at the Junto, and author of the forthcoming book, Past and Prologue, Politics and Memory in the American Revolution, which will be published by Yale University Press in November of 2020. Thanks for being here, Michael. Thank you, Ken. I'm also joined by Roy Rogers, who is social studies teacher and blended learning coordinator at Yes Philly Accelerated High School. Thanks for joining me, Roy. Howdy, Ken. So, before we get into our discussion of the myriad examples of violence that stud the history of early America, I figured that we should have some discussion of what we actually mean by the term political violence. Before I tell you more about my approach to the topic, I will remind listeners that we have recorded a previous episode on popular protest in early America. And we suggest that if you're interested in some of the topics that we talk about today, and you're interested in the definitions that we get into, that you look for that episode in our back catalogue. For my part, um, I've written about political violence in my book, Political Community on Revolutionary Pennsylvania. And I take quite a specific definition when I'm talking about political violence, which is to say I'm talking about violence that is specifically carried out with the aim of achieving some sort of governmental policy and affecting change from governmental institutions. So therefore, when I talk about political violence in my research and in my academic work, I am using it in quite a specific and bounded sense. I know there are differing opinions on this. Roy, how would you define the term political violence? I think uh, I think your definition of sort of policy-oriented vi- uh, violence is a, is a good starting point, but I think that um, it is useful to sometimes think a little bit broader about that because you can include uh, certain forms of cultural violence, linguistic violence, and uh, other actions that are, are meant to change how society and power structures work at a, at a fundamental level and to bring attention to um, inequalities and uh, injustices in those structures, at least as people see them. So for myself, I think I'm I'm closer to to Roy than uh, than you can in this instance. I recently uh, taught a course this past year on this very topic, political violence in early America, and my perspective on what 
what political violence is, as certainly in, in the context of early America, but I think just generally as well also, is it, when we think about the term political violence, the way that I think about the political in that term is more broad than your definition. I think, you know, politics, thinking about the political very broadly means means thinking about power. And so political violence, to my mind, is is violence that occurs or that is brought to bear with the primary purpose of disrupting or changing power relationships. And that might be political, but it's also why, you know, we can think in terms of forms of cultural violence being political or, or perhaps even, you know, some forms of economic violence or social violence. So so for, for myself, at least, when I think about political violence, generally, I'm thinking about these questions about power. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly the points that you make about power are well taken, as are Roy's points about different forms of violence, cultural, linguistic, um, and governmental violence. To me, it's important to distinguish between those different types of violence. Um, I think that violence that's carried out by government agencies, for example, is a little bit different from political violence in some ways because of the power relations that you're talking about. Um, I figure it's just important that we put our cards out on the on the table here just to make sure that when we get into specific examples, it might seem sometimes like we're talking at slightly cross purposes. Um, so, but I think we're, we're on the same page, at least as far as political violence goes, insofar as there is some form of continuum between popular protest and power when we talk about violence. And the question really is, where exactly on that continuum do we do we place our considerations of, of political violence? I think it's also, we've spent some time here sort of talking about the bounds of the political side of political violence, but I think we're also going to probably run into a little cross-purposes about what is violence in the first place, right? It's another sort of uh, kind of term that's a sword with no hilt um, that's really hard to get a grip on, um, you know, and, and as we'll see, you know, as you see in contemporary debates over political violence, what is violence? Is it simply limited to um, actions against persons, actions against institutions, actions against you know, physical structures, statues? What is violence um, is something that is also difficult to pin down. And I think we'll, as we narrate some of the stories that we're going to be telling here and give our perspectives on them, we're going to see that um, it's a very, it's very difficult to pin down. Yeah, I think I think it's it's also worth noting that part of a, a, the the challenge for a historian, whether it's talking about political violence or, or or really any topic, is 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 about narrowing it down to be manageable, right? And so, in in some sense, you know, uh, we're all going to be engaged in a, in in the process of doing that throughout throughout this discussion as mm-hmm. you know, just as historians. Absolutely. I think it's probably also worth mentioning, um, given that we are recording this um, on the 7th of June 2020, that we are clear about when we're recording this. Um, Clearly, one of the reasons that we are um, turning again to the question of 
popular protest in early America um, is partially informed by what is going on in the United States of America and around the world at the moment. Um, And it's probably best that we're clear about exactly when we're talking about this in case there are references um, that change with a rapidly unfolding news landscape. So hopefully there we've given you some idea of the complexity of talking about a topic like political violence um, as historians, but all historical discussions require some reference to the past. Um, And so we should probably get into the 17th century um, as our starting point for discussing political violence. What are what is the history of political violence in the 17th century British colonies in North America? Well, Ken, even Bernard Balin agrees that there was a lot of it in the 17th century. Uh, and you can uh, say that the action of settlement itself uh, is a form of political violence um, going to you know, Jamestown, um, there was a lot of violence between the Aboriginal people of Virginia and the European settlers. Um, And this is one of those issues that really shows the, you know, difficult nature to pin down of what the definitions of of political violence are. You know, um, we often don't think about settlement, the act of settlement itself being a foundational form of political violence in in colonial Britain, um, because it gets framed as war and settlement sometimes gets framed as an inevitable process, an inevitable force in history. And how can that be political violence? But I think that sort of that's, you know, the violent nature of the seizing of um, the Aboriginal people's land in in Virginia, in, in 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 New England, in Pennsylvania, sort of sets the tone for the 17th century, and it sort of spirals from there. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I mean, you, the book that the book that Roy is referring to by Bernard Bellin is called "The Barbarous Years," and you know, it's it's a it's a fair reminder that from the very beginning, violence and what you can what you could argue it was is political violence was central to the story of early America from the very beginning. And I think if we look at early Virginia, it's not just the act of settlement, but also the process of establishing power and authority Mm -hmm. in Jamestown that is an incredibly violent process. We see that Mm -hmm. with um, semi-regular imposition of martial law Mm -hmm. to impose some kind of political order within the colony. Um, We see that with the introduction of slavery, which we know in 1619, but may well have been present in in Virginia beforehand, um, that we Mm -hmm. see from those very early years, violence is is present. And then the question is exactly where do you draw the line on what is governmental, cultural, systemic, political violence? But I think we're right here to to highlight the the violent nature of 17th century society um, as an inflection point against which we can talk about other episodes of violence that are more explicitly about the governmental system. Yeah, and it's worth it's worth reiterating to hear that because we are historians and, and also because we are uh, working at the moment in this podcast format and we are restricted for time and have so much to talk about. Um, that you know, inevitably, we are engaged in, in a high level of selectivity 
in, in the things that we talk about. And I think it's worth reiterating that not talking about certain events does not mean to imply that they either don't meet the standard of political violence or that they're not important to the overall story. Absolutely. And I, I think starting with Jamestown um, is really important because I think it sets the tenor for some of the other things that we'll talk about when, when we move forward, both in the 17th century and the 18th and 19th century. Um, I think on a both on two, I think two axes of which political violence is really important to think about, which is uh, race, when Ken mentioned the introduction of slavery, and slavery is fundamentally a violent institution. It's confiscating, uh, stealing, whatever term you want to use, seizing uh, Aboriginal lands. That's another form of racial violence. And then also class violence. Uh, they're related, obviously, particularly in Virginia with a planter, a rich planter class that loves both slavery and its own wealth. Um, but uh, that and that's going to boil over um, in Bacon's Rebellion. Um, and sort of, and, we'll, and you see the interaction of these two things. But I think as we move through the story, I think those two structures are important ones in which political violence plays out. And it starts with Jamestown. Absolutely. And, and when you talked about violence against Native peoples, violence against the enslaved, and class warfare in early America, my mind immediately jumped to Bacon's Rebellion as well, which I think is also the event that under my more narrow definition of political violence is the first large-scale political violence that you would see, um, at least in terms of such a direct challenge to the authority of mm -hmm. colonial government. Um, and Bacon's Rebellion, which takes place um, across 1675 and 1676 in Virginia has been one of those events that has always been really confounding for historians, partially because it sits at the confluence of so many often contradictory um, historical currents um, in that the leader, Nathaniel Bacon, is not exactly your typical rebel. Mm -hmm. um, he he is the titular head of the rebellion. Um, he's only recently arrived in Virginia um, and takes on Governor Berkeley and the corrupt elite that has um, consolidated itself in power um, in 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 early Virginia. Um, at the same time, Bacon has connections. Yeah. Bacon has every opportunity to become part of Berkeley's Green Spring faction and to enjoy the the fruits of the existing colonial government. And so even in the leadership itself, the question of why Bacon is quite so intent on destroying royal authority in Virginia is not always easily answered. Right. So Bacon has this relationship. I mean, he's related to Governor Barclay, right? And part of, I think, one of the ways to, to try to understand how a, a rebellion that, that we've come to see is, is, you know, so fundamentally rooted in both racial and, and class-based antagonisms um, by this otherwise elite gentleman is the fact that he's, he came from England. And he came from England to Virginia very late after the planter class is, is, is effectively established. And they had so effectively closed off entry into that class it, that it even affected an elite gentleman from England coming to Virginia. Bacon got land. It was not the best land. He got a seat on the council. 
So he had the he had the the chance to influence policy, but it, but the hold I think the hold was so strong already by the elite planter class in Virginia that it even precluded the entry at least to his own desire of of an elite gentleman from England. There's of course also the sort of condescending perspective of Bacon coming and seeing these men who back in England would be nobody and they were standing in the way of what he believed to be his birthright as a as an English gentleman in an English colony. I think it's also important to think about the forces that Bacon's Rebellion marshaled um, to enact the, the, the fact that there is this, you know, ragtag alliance that really does threaten the political power structure, right? There's um, appeals to poor white people, appeals to former servants, slave, enslaved people, um, formerly enslaved people, the, the small number that are that are in Virginia at that point. And it, it's create the idea that it could create this kind of that there's a form of political violence that is cross class and cross race is a huge, huge threat to the Virginia power structure. And it sort of shows the sort of dialectic that goes on with po- political violence sometimes as it begins to settle and you see what changes it makes that the that the establishment there you know doubles down on certain types of political violence particularly racial political violence to try to soothe the potential of political violence emerging out of the economic structure and that is a really important legacy of Bacon's Rebellion um, in the context of Virginia, that you see the sort of strengthening of slavery, you see the strengthening of gender norms, you see the strengthening of just, you know, a conservative character of Virginia, of Virginia culture that, that goes into the 18th century. That's really important because, you know, political violence, there's sort of like, I guess, two sides to it. There's what Respond, what, what the things that cause it, and then how the power structure either collapses in the case of the American Revolution, will get to because of political violence, or the ways in which it responds, co-ops, and 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 brings some of those forces that are are being violent into itself. And I think Bacon's Rebellion is a good example of a power structure that's able to absorb the violent blow, and um, and strengthen itself despite of it. And and I think it's important to. Um, build on that by looking at exactly how Bacon comes to be the leader in that, um, as Michael mentions, um, Bacon arrives late and has not been in Virginia long before he takes up um, his his rebellion against Berkeley. And that's important because, yes, the legal system has already been in place, the economic system has already been in place that gives the... um, the richest planters, the control of the courts. It gives the richest planters the control of the economic system. Um, it also means that Bacon arrives after Berkeley has kind of shut off any other avenue for political protest through the House of Burgesses. Um, a lot of the history of early Virginia highlights the role of the House of Burgesses as the first elected institution in North America, but Berkeley does not call any elections from the early 1660s until he's basically forced to by the agitation of Bacon and his rebels um, in the mid-1670s. And that's that's an important part of 
where the fear comes from that so many other avenues of protest have been shut off. There's economic marginality, there's legal marginality, there's often um, religious marginality, but that there is no political pressure valve in the 1670s in Virginia that can be utilised. And then when Bacon comes across and utilises a very... um, very typically English Civil War denunciation of royal power um, to mobilise those who are already disaffected um, into a potential overthrow of Governor Berkeley. Um, Bacon is stepping into a a very potent political situation on top of all those other political structures, all those other societal and governmental structures that we've talked about. Yeah, and we, I mean, we know from relatively uh, recent work on Bacon's Rebellion that a significant part of the popular grievance beyond the, the issue of the scarcity of land for freed indentured servants um, and, and newcomers had to do specifically with the House of Burgesses and, and, and the way that it operated because it, it cost poor white farmers actually a, a fair amount of uh, not money, but tobacco to fund their representatives to the House of Burgesses. And that was a significant and widespread grievance at the time. It's probably worth mentioning here that in some ways, um, and this is what makes Bacon Rebellion so difficult to talk about in in typical um rebellion or revolution terms of oppressors versus oppressed is that one of the vehicles by which the um so at least some of the supporters of bacon sought to um act on their grievances was to seek um the ability to have further violence against native americans and indeed bacon's rebellion um is prompted by very violent conflicts between um, Doeg and Susquehannock Native Americans and backcountry settlers um, over issues such as um, the murder of Native Americans in response to the killing of um, pigs that had roamed onto native um, farming lands. Um, this was a so- source of, of constant tension. And one of the precipitating demands um, ahead of Bacon's rebellion is the demand for commission into the militia um, to allow raiding against Native Americans. Um, and so this is one of the reasons that the political violence becomes especially complicated, because on the one hand, there are um, Bacon leads an armed militia into Jamestown um, very violently laying down a challenge to Berkeley's authority. But the other area where Bacon leads a militia is into the backcountry to fight Native Americans. The conflict that lead to Bacon seeking his militia commission are very obviously precipitated by angry settlers that hope that by fighting, killing Native Americans and seizing their land, that will be their way of getting the economic riches that they hope um, will become their guarantor of survival in Virginia society. Yeah, it's absolutely a huge part of Bacon's appeal to the poor white 
part of his constituency, that he, unlike Barclay, is willing to engage in violence against Native Americans and violence that is aimed primarily at trying to push Native Americans off of their lands on the frontier of the colony. And so that is, that's, a, that's a major part of, of his appeal. And it was a longstanding grievance because it was something that Barclay had for many years uh, for a variety of reasons, including his own personal interests, ha- had, had made basically a non-starter. Which is particularly interesting because much of Berkeley's early rise to to popularity in Virginia had come from um, from Indian fighting, but then as the system, um, the, the, the the Greenspring faction and the system consolidates around Berkeley, he then places very tight limits on engagements with Native American populations. Full stop. But that's partially so that his allies can profit from Indian trade whilst shutting poor whites out of that um, economic interchange. Yeah, and also to save money, right? Um, bringing the colonial militia to systematically fight costs him money. Absolutely. And and so, so there's an additional economic thing, right? It's a consolidation of like where money is going to be in white society. Um, and... Berkeley and his faction would much rather keep it concentrated in the Tidewater, uh, expanding slavery, dealing only with Indians as, on an a, on a economic footing that benefits them, where you have these more backcountry, poorer white folk who, you know, view violence against Native Americans um, as their entryway into up the upper echelons of Virginia society. Um, and that, again, again it's, I think it's, it's just showing... I think this is where... The, there's the tension between Ken's definition and the more wider one that uh, Michael and I are, are, are viewing, because I would view most of these actions across the board as forms of political violence, um, whether or not they are specifically targeted towards policy ends. Um, and we'll see we'll see that. Um, and you see that again once Bacon's Rebellion is over, where, you know, again, just to go back to my earlier point where they're just doubling down on this specifically racialized political violence against Native peoples on one hand, and then enslaved Africans and African-Americans on the other. Yeah, and that's one of the the challenges in in looking at Bacon's Rebellion purely as an act of, of political violence by my definition, in that if you look at the manifestos and the declarations that are issued by Bacon and his supporters in 1675, you find quite a damning list of charges against Berkeley, all of which are pretty much true. At the same time, if your only frame of reference is what Berkeley is doing, you're also missing out an awful lot on what the Bacon's rebels themselves are arguing for, um, which is not necessarily to have some enlightened system of government replace um, Berkeley's authority, but simply to have the, the, the same forms of authority just that benefit them a little bit more directly. Yeah, I think, you know, generally, generally speaking, we see how economic motivations can be a driver for political violence. If we're asking ourselves, what is it that allowed Bacon to develop such a large following that he could bring this level of disorder and uh, disruption to Virginian society? Uh, Part of it has to do with the economic motivations of his constituency. But I think one of the other things that we see, too, is the political value of 
the, either the promise or even just potential of violence, because it is very much Bacon's willingness to engage in violence against Native Americans for what are effectively political purposes, because it's trying to to change the power relationships both within the colony and between the uh, colonists and and uh, the indigenous population. And so, you know, this this idea of the the value of of the the promise or potential of violence, and and that's I guess, in in so many many ways that's sort of interrelated with these economic motivations for political violence that we also see. And that's one of the the problems that we have in in analysing Bacon's Rebellion is that Bacon disappears um, almost as soon as he arrives as a leader of this uprising. That is, of course, because he he dies while out on one of his Native American commissions um, from dysentery. Um, And that sudden death means that there is never a long-term continued pressure that comes through Bacon or a successful overthrow of Berkeley that then Bacon has to follow through on. And so it's one of these things that you're also able to write an awful lot into when you look back on the past, because there's an awful lot of Bacon's rebellion that is frustrated hopes and frustrated dreams and we don't know the way in which that would have played out had it ever reached any particular type of success Um, in particular I'm thinking here of the fact that um, some historians look at the backlash against um, Bacon's rebellion in the aftermath of 1676 by focusing on the way in which Virginian leaders racialize Virginian society even further than it was already racialized in 1676 because as Roy mentioned there is a cross-racial alliance amongst some of Bacon's supporters. The question that we don't know is what would have happened to that solidarity of Bacon's rebels had Bacon ever ended up in any effective governing position? Yeah, the uh, cross-racial nature of Bacon's constituency really was the potential nightmare for the Virginian ruling class, but it's also stood in the similar sense to the various ruling classes throughout American history, this type of cross-racial alliance. I think I want to point out, you know, one of the other important distinctions that we see here in Bacon's Rebellion that will sort of be a thread through is Bacon Bacon dies from dysentery and effectively his constituency loses their will to violence, uh, their will to continue and uh, with the rebellion and with the violence upon his death. And so we have this situation where the will to political violence was though it was driven by circumstances it was it was sort of manifested through an individual and that's one form of the manifestation or encouragement i guess you could say of, of political violence in american history and and then the other is sort of a more popular what we might think of as mob or crowd actions right that don't rely on a single individual to bring the the will to violence to uh, fruition I think this, uh, I think to go back real quick to Ken's point about Bacon dying earlier, you know, he never actually has to rule. Um, I think that also cuts for the ruling class itself, right? Since Bacon never actually ruled, it allows them to imagine the worst horrors to themselves that Bacon would have done. And that is also partially 
explains the backlash, right? Um, because you, we don't actually see what Bacon was like in government with his his faction in charge. Um, the the Berkeley faction once. Bacon's died and things have died down a little bit and they begin reconsolidating their power, they imagine the outcome of Bacon's rebellion as, you know, possibly much worse than it may have been if they had been in power. And that leads to that extreme, you know, racialization of their society, um, you know, masculinization of the society, just making boundaries in Virginia very clear so that violators of them are clearly marked and become targets for political violence. Um, because, you know, you see, you know, moving into the 18th century, increased political violence against minorities in Virginia. Those could be religious minorities. They, they're def- certainly racial minorities in the forms of enslaved Africans, African-Americans and uh, Aboriginal Americans. And then, you know, Virginia becomes a society. And of course, you know, women and men that don't conform to Virginia gender norms as well. This consolidation that happens opens up new forms or not new forms, maybe, but expanded forms of, of political violence afterwards as well, partially because leaders can imagine all kinds of horrors um, from their point of view that they, they may not have had to if Bacon actually had to govern. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And sort of a good segue into thinking about Leisler's rebellion in New York in the wake of the Glorious Revolution, because Leisler, unlike Bacon, did rule for a brief period. And it's arguable, but I don't think we see the same sort of reaction by the ruling class in colonial New York after the rebellion is put down uh, that we saw in Virginia. I think part of that is down basically to the ineffectiveness of Leisler's short period of rule. He was never really able to uh, get a real hold all over the entire colony. He had good control of the southern part. But when he tried to exert control over um, the northern part of the colony, like the Hudson Valley and Albany especially, uh, he really just left a lot of disorder and uh, instability in, in his wake. So this is another situation, I think, where we have an individual driving this uh, will to violence. But of course, you know, Leisler's Rebellion, like the uprisings in New England at the same time, uh, were largely in response to the uh, greatly unpopular Dominion of New England, which James II had established to basically combine all of the New England and Middle colonies into one colony, uh, and when he was dis- um, deposed by the Glorious Revolution in 1688, it left this uh, power vacuum uh, that factions in each colony uh, looking to restore the, the previous colonial ruling orders were stepped into. And I think that this is an instance where, you know, Leisler's uh, ineffectiveness and his inability to consolidate his rule led to different outcomes than we saw in Virginia. Yeah, and I think the Glorious Revolution, though, does open opportunities for successful, If particularly if we're looking at Ken's um, you know, more narrow definition of political violence, which is this sort of policy-oriented violence. Um, in Maryland, um, in response to the Glorious Revolution, there's the Protestant Associators who lead basically a Protestant revolution in Maryland, a, a violent one um, that overthrows the Calvert regime that, you know, in popular memory and to many historians, the main thing we remember about colonial Maryland is that the Calverts set up a relative, the 
you know, besides Pennsylvania, the most and Rhode Island, the most tolerant, religiously speaking regime in colonial British North America. Um, but the problem uh, that that regime faced, it was a Catholic minority ruling over a Protestant majority and using the Glorious Revolution as a pretext, that Protestant majority violently overthrew the, the, the Calverts and fundamentally changed Maryland's political society and religious society, put Protestants uh, uh, Protestants in power, put Anglicans in power, built up an Anglican religious establishment. Um, all these things, uh, this is a successful form of political violence if we view it as from a policy-oriented lens. And I think it also highlights some of the contradictions um, for us sitting here in the 21st century, because, you know, we tend to, again, celebrate. I mean, if you learn anything about Maryland history as offered by the free state, you know, people want to remember the Calverts um, and they want to remember Maryland as a tolerant place. Um, but of course, as much of Maryland's colonial history is not under that regime. It's under this regime that's set up after the Glor Glorious Revolution. And it's sort of not, it's a form of political violence that is not progressive by our 20th or even really 19th century standards of, of what is, you know, American and good and the progressive element of, of, of American history. One thing it does show, I think, is that there's a very, often a very specific and particular set of circumstances that lead to rebellions being successful. Um, in that clearly... What happens in, in 1688 in England provides an opportunity for at least, um, well, no, not, not at least. Um, it, it, provi it provides an opportunity for widespread protest and dissatisfaction in Britain's North American colonies to spread. And, and Michael's already talked about New York. New York, as he said, was following the example of Massachusetts. Again, Massachusetts, where colonial government was effectively overthrown for a period of time until the British were able to re-establish some measure of control, but only at the cost of accommodating some of the demands of the old colonial order that because of there's there's that relationship to instability and in, in maryland it's particularly potent because of what we've just been talking about in bacon's rebellion as well we talked about virginian leaders imagining what might have happened if um if bacon had taken over that's clearly on the mind of um people in in maryland as well i think that's fair to say isn't it roy yeah, it's definitely fair to say. And I, there's also the fear, right, that the, the Calverts are, you know, well, they are Catholic, right, that they're going to set up a, a regime like what, what was viewed by the Protestant associators as like what was overthrown in, back in England. Um, and so that I, I do agree. Definitely we see these sort of – there's context I think is necessary um, for understanding times in which political uh, violence is able to have concrete policy ends uh, that stick um, and I think an important thing to also understand that we, we, we sort of talked about with Bacon, of course, you know, that the English Civil War is also looming in Bacon in Bacon's Rebellion as well. So I think these and there's an interesting interpol, uh, interplay between disruptions at the Metropole and um, political violence in, in, in the colonies. I, I, I think there's also something interesting about the fact that... Um, the more successful rebellions here don't necessarily have a name. You've talked about the Protestant associators in Maryland as successfully overthrowing Calvert Catholic regime. We've talked about um, some success, at least in Massachusetts, of establishing an alternative government. Um, 
Jacob Lysler is probably the least successful of those that's leading um, rebellions against uh, British colonial rule in in that period at the end of the 1680s. And yet he is the one that is the eponymous hero or anti-hero, I guess, dependent on your perspective of a rebellion. Um, Similarly, Bacon doesn't succeed. Bacon um, gets his own gets his own um, name. And I wonder there how much um, that comes down to popular memory when we think about um, rebellions as well, that it, it's much easier to pin your hopes on a historical figure who you can craft into some sort of hero because they can embody the noblest ideas that they lived up to. Whereas if you actually have successful change, you kind of want to make that seem like it's the natural order of things and you don't necessarily want to emphasize the the change. I think it's also important to, to highlight the role histor- history plays in this, in the sense that like Bacon's Rebellion in particular was used by... Thomas Jefferson, right? Like, uh, as an example, an early example of Virginia expanding its democratic appeal, right? Um, the more unsavory things that we view here in the 21st century about Bacon's Rebellion, you know, 18th and 19th century Americans didn't view that. And Bacon's Rebellion was part of a, like, a series of moments in colonial history that led to the American Revolution. And, you know, today in the 21st century, people look at that cross-racial alliance, right, as something that was lost, right? So there's still, like, I think these particularly failed rebellions are, are easier to create uh, a historical narrative out of because you can you can pull, you can, you know, you can, we talked about the ways in Berkeley's regime, you know, the nightmares of, what Bacon may have done if he's in charge for other people that could be Jefferson celebrating the more democratic elements of Bacon's rebellion or us in the 21st century celebrating the cross-racial elements of Bacon's rebellion. Look at the dreams of Bacon. Right. And I think that that, you know, unplayed out those failed rebellions are always going to be stand out more than um, than a successful rebellion, unless it fundamentally changes the uh the political regime, the way in which, of course, probably the next topic we should move on to, the American Revolution does. <laughs> yeah, I think these are important points about the role that history and memory play in how we're perceiving these events. Uh, you know, just like Bacon never had to rule, uh, influence the response by the ruling class, it's also influenced how that event has been perceived throughout history. Roy mentions uh, Thomas Jefferson, all the early national historians of Virginia saw Bacon's Rebellion in this way as a, a prelude or a precursor or even a premonition of the American Revolution. It was a popular uprising against a tyrannical ruler in the form of Barclay. I also think it's important to their long-term memory, right? The memory of the American Revolution, which we'll talk about in a minute, has I think traditionally ignored the violence that was involved. And I think that's partly because it was successful. I think that in our collective memory about American history, we sort of tended to downplay episodes of political violence that were unsuccessful or that failed to achieve their objective. And at the same time, we've downplayed the political violence 
involved in other rebellious episodes that that did achieve their objective. So the question that I want to raise um, to segue into the 18th century um, is one relating to the contagion um, of rebellion. Because, Michael, I know that you mentioned um, potentially talking about the 1741 um, slave conspiracy in in New York City. Um, And when I looked at the 1670s and the 1680s, one of the things that I notice is the way in which rumours of unrest in one colony spread very quickly to other colonies. Um, Some of the actions in King Philip's War and Bacon's Rebellion inform the colonial leadership in Massachusetts and in in Virginia in how they respond to uprisings both from native americans and from um the the governed population similarly in 1688 um all the other colonies are are looking at each other to to see how they respond to the interruption of of british colonial authority and clearly that idea of what happens in one colony informs what happens everywhere else um, is going to be important when we talk about the revolution as well. Um, was, and, and that's what I think about when I think of, of 1741 in, in New York City, that the the fear and, and, and the rumours and, and the actual um, revolts of the enslaved in, in other parts of the British Empire have such a, a hold on the psyche of those in, in New York City that it it starts to take on a life of its own. Um, what was, was there anything further you wanted to add on that, Michael? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think that's a really important point and, it, and it's a critical part of what happened in 1741. 1741 in New York city, does not have this sort of uh, memorial cachet, right? That some of these other events that we've talked about, or for that matter, like the Salem witch trials, which has many similarities to 1741. There's an interesting discussion to be had about why it's the case that that 1741 really does not have a, a significant place uh, in American popular memory. But basically what happened in, in 1741 in New York City is that there were a series of many, many fires that broke out throughout the city over the course of a couple of weeks in the spring of uh, 1741. And, and there were other events that got tied into it. But basically what happened was that the residents, the, the citizens of New York, basically came to believe that there was a conspiracy behind these fires and that uh, that conspiracy was was aided and abetted by um, this sort of white uh, tavern owner, John Euston, who had this tavern where that was mostly patronized by enslaved persons, by free blacks, by and and by poor whites in the city. So this is another uh, this is another example of where we see cro- some cross raciality, you know, really feeding into the, the flames of political violence. But but the idea was that, uh, or the story went that these slaves were had developed this conspiracy to basically overthrow the, the, the government of New York and that they had a plan and part of the, the, the craziness, I guess, in a sense, of the of the, the way that the rumors worked. I mean one of the one of the main rumors was that the, one of the ringleaders who who was a, an enslaved person who was referred to as Caesar was quoted as saying that, you know, his intention was to uh, kill the governor and then take the governor's wife as his wife. 
right? These are the kinds of rumors that were going around in New York City uh, in the context of these fires. And it's and it's worth pointing out that why is it that fires could, you know, uh, a series of fires would make people so conspiratorially minded or so alarmed is because, of course, you know, fire is one of the, the biggest constant threats, right, to a colonial city. These cities were you know, largely constructed of, of wood buildings. And, and this is goes well, you know, well into the 18th century. And so fire was a constant fear in, in colonial urban settings. And so that, that sort of plays a part. But one of the other things, and this goes to, directly to your point, Ken, about other places in context is this is only uh, less than two years after the Stono Rebellion. So there's that. There's also the war with Spain that England is engaged in. And there's a whole element to these trials that that occur that involve, you know, suspected Spanish spies and Catholic priests. It's, it's you know, the, all of it. It's almost like all of the biggest nightmares of, of colonial New York City residents were sort of manifested for this conspiracy. And it, it's really interesting from a from a historical perspective, because we really don't know what happened in New York City in 1741. Uh, the only historical records that we really have of what happened is the account of the trial, which was written by the presiding judge, Daniel Horsemanden, who was this uh, Supreme Court justice and a member of the, the, the city's ruling elite. So, of course, he had his, his own specific interest in crafting a narrative that would be able to uh, reestablish the ruling class's authority in the wake of this. And in terms of violence, you know, we talk about the fires, but ultimately the, the city's response were, was through these trials and the results were effectively that uh, 13 slaves were burned at the stake, that uh, 17 of them were hung, 84 were sold into slavery in the Caribbean. Uh, and and two white men and two white women were also hung. So it's a sum total of violence. It's actually more than what happened in Salem, but yet it, it it's not imprinted on our collective memory the way that Salem is. I mean, thanks for such a, a comprehensive rundown of, of what happens in New York City in 1741. And I think this is an important point to bear in mind, especially when we think of the, the aftermath of, of this sort of of political violence, that often there is um, a crackdown and a consolidation of power. So we, we see the theme of contagion emerging in what we've we've talked about in terms of what might precipitate um, political violence to break out. Um, but we can also see the way in which authorities consider violence to be inherently destabilising, inherently threatening and delegitimising to their to their claims to authority, and therefore that there is often a, a counter-mobilisation um, of some sort of institutional response, um, and that this political violence, we like to remember this as the expression of um, popular feeling and trying to take control back from governments, um, but that this often, if we look at this not just as episodes of violence, but put this in a two-year, five-year, ten-year perspective, that there's a dialectical relationship between the violence and the institutional responses um, that I think we can see see very clearly in what you talk about in New York City. And of course, if we're talking about a, a, a dialectic between um, popular violence, popular uprising, and colonial crackdown, that seems to be a very good 
jumping off point for talking about the political violence that was used um, during the American Revolution. Now, clearly, there have been hundreds of books and decades worth of historical research that has, has chronicled the violence of, um, of the American Revolution. Where do we want to start our discussion of, of American revolutionary violence? I mean, I think we can begin our discussion with two kinds of violence um, in the American Revolution. There are many more than that, but for our purposes, I think we might focus on two. First, if we think about, say, the Stamp Act riots in the fall of 65, there's a lot of destruction of property by popular crowds, but there's not a lot of violence against someone's person. What's important about that, I think, is that the nature of that popular resistance was both uh, controlled um, in terms of the crowd violence, but also the, the ways in which it spread from colony to colony, starting in Massachusetts. The other example of violence against persons that we might think about beyond wartime violence, I think, is tarring and feathering. I think the best place to start was probably that idea of contagion. I think um, an important key to understanding um, violence in the revolution is that rumors, violence in one place leads to subsequent violence in other places, which can sometimes rebound either to a new third location or go back to the original location, that there is this sort of um, networks, network, the networks of communication that are built in the 18th century um, lead, help spread this contagion much faster and much thoroughgoing, allowing, if we want to continue with this natural metaphor of disease or, or fire, um, you know, to just these wildfires of rebellion and popular violence to sort of spread and sustain. I think that's the other thing that separates the 18th century from the 17th century is that these forms of violence are more sustained. Um, and the imperial crisis, you know, when we teach it uh, free, sometimes, um, particularly in a survey course or, um, or you know, in, in high school, it, it, it sometimes feels a little bit more shrunk um, because there's just so much that you need to talk about. Um, it can it can feel like very quick because you go stamp back, tea party, massacre, Lexington Concord, Paul Revere, all these these famous things. It can feel very, you know, boom, 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 one thing after the other. But it's you know spread and sustained over a solid amount of time, particularly again compared to the 17th century incidents that we've talked about um, earlier. So I think that that might be a good place to start with the political violence yeah, in the 18th century in the American Revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's also um, worth noting the developing relationship between more organized forms of political resistance and more violent forms of, um, of political resistance as well. I mean, you mentioned destruction of property. Um, the destruction of property was clearly the main target of the mob, but it was also meant to scare um, and yeah, we, we we see the way in which um, Thomas Hutchinson sends his family out of um, out of town, whilst making sure that he himself is present, so that he can portray a manly um, image of someone that wasn't going to shy away in the face of illegitimate challenges to his authority. But nevertheless, that that 
intimidatory aspect, that threat of potential violence against the person, um, is very effective even in areas where there isn't violence because the protesters are able to say, well, you really wouldn't want this to happen to you, would you? You like your house, you like your curtains, you like your your property. It would be a shame to see that destroyed in the street, wouldn't it? Um, And so it can help give a hard edge to political negotiations. And then if we jump off on that to then look at what happens when that violence does cross over into being targeted at persons, we see that becomes particularly prevalent by the time you're getting to 1773, 1774, where there is this popular memory of protest maybe need to get escalated to be able to have more results. Also, protest um, and violence defining the limits of what is and isn't acceptable within the the community, um, particularly sort of being made to ride the rail. There's sort of the um, exemplary punishment that is meted out to those that evade um, the standards of the community. Um, and and that becomes very important as well. That again, it becomes a way of of regulating behaviour, um, as well as pushing for particular governmental ends. Yeah, it, I mean that's. I, I think that's a really important point because we do see the nature of the popular resistance change over the course of the the decade that leads up to independence, right? We see these popular mob actions, destruction of property during the protests against the Stamp Act in 1765. But if we look at the resistance to, say, the the Townsend Acts later in the 1760s, it's, it's much more organized. It's, there's less destruction of property by crowd action. And, and a big part of that had to do with the sort of the consolidation of leadership of the resistance movement by colonial Whig elites, right? But by the time that we get to 1773 and 74, uh, that changes again. As the crisis continues and new developments occur, and they seem to be increasingly uh, drastic and unprecedented actions by Parliament and and the, the the British Ministry, and this is this is really when we start to see not just tarring and feathering, but we see tarring and feathering actually change too, right? Because we see it uh, when we first see tarring and tarring and feathering, it's it's mostly aimed at customs officials, and it's mostly for specific actions. Um, but by seventy five and and seventy six, you know, we start to see fellow colonists being targeted for tarring and feathering, right? And not for specific actions, but for, you know, statements or for beliefs. And that's an important change, not least because it changes the focus of tarring and feathering from Mm -hmm. uh, punishment for actions to uh, primarily be about instilling fear in their uh, fellow uh, colonial population. Yeah, and and I think it's also notable, again, you talk about this 75, 76. Um, We can also see the way that this plays out by comparing what goes on in different localities. And one of the things that I talk about when teaching the Tea Act is um, that if you go to Boston and we think of the Tea Party and that's become the defining image of protest um, because of the both the violence of the protest and the violence of the British response. Um, It's very different from the way that the Tea Act is effectively protested elsewhere, that in Charleston, 
They take the tea off the ship, but they put it under guard so that it can't be sold, thus avoiding violence. But there's a knowledge that if there is ever an attempt to be sold, there is an armed guard waiting there to take up the fight. Um, Yeah, in, in Philadelphia, they just send letters to the captains threatening... politely imagining the captain to um, think of the image of how they would have their appearance enlivened by a a barrel of tar and some turkey feathers too, um, and and a coat of turkey feathers. And surprisingly, the captain decides to turn around. Um, But we see there again that, again, how violence is on this continuum that in some ways it can be very effective to have outbursts of violence because it makes the threat real um but that it it goes from a threat to intimidation to outright physical damage um and that if you trace that you can also get a sense of that question of how does protest work most effectively yeah i mean this 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 idea about you know about the threat of violence the power of the threat of violence and the power of the fear that's instilled by that i mean that's a central part of patriot politics right in in the resistance to to uh, parliamentary reform and uh and and leading up to independence it's a sort of similar situation in 1741 if you think about it because the, the only political violence that we know about that occurred in 1741 was committed by the state and they committed that at the because of the perceived threat of potential political violence the, the sort of overthrow of the of the city and colonial government and, and we see that same thing sort of at work in the 1760s and 1770s and you have to i think it, it sort of raises the question about whether whether something has to be physical for it to be political violence right it, it's the threat of violence itself a form of political violence and if so how how does that work and why does it work yeah i mean my answer to that is that it's part of a, a toolkit of of popular protest um and that there's a and, and I mean, I, I expound on this in, in, in my book at greater length, but that you can go from quite obvious forms of protest, from yeah, writing to your local newspaper um, to something that's more organised, like holding a town meeting or running an election campaign, um, through to actions like civil disobedience, refusing to attend court, trying to shut down county courthouses, um, to outright acts of violence where property is destroyed or physical harm is inflicted on on other persons and that to try and effect any sort of political change you kind of want to use the tool that is the sharp the the bluntest that you need to to get the um maybe maybe using sharp and blunt is the the, the wrong terminology here but you you want to use the the tool that will cause the least amount of damage to affect the change that you that you want to see um and that what we find in the american revolution is that that might be tearing down a house in in 1765 um and that that has a short term impact and that in 67 69 you don't need to do much more than go round and remind the merchants of their obligations to the community. Um, but by 1773, when maybe institutional memory has 
subsided a bit or tensions seem to have subsided a bit you need to go back to something that is um that is more violent and then when that doesn't work or even engenders more violence in um in in response that the only way that you can begin to escalate your your protest is by making your protest ever more destructive and ever more violent um and I think that that's a relationship that we we do see developing. I mean, there is, there is one thing that I'm I'm missing out here, which is the way in which that is backed up by sophisticated, um, popular, governmental and quasi-governmental um, institutions that are able to mobilise other forms of power as well. Um, and and that's a, a but I think that's that that that's a separate question from what we're talking about here. In how does violence? develop as a political tactic and um, and what should we consider violent or non-violent yeah i think i mean an, an example of both the contagion and fear aspects of what we've been talking about is if we take the boston massacre as an example of political violence or or at least a, as an event that was treated as an example of political violence if we think about the way the news and the imagery of the uh, famous woodcuts spread throughout the colonies and the sort of sense of fear that it stoked of uh, a potential impending violence in people of other colonies. I think another example of that, and this is a wartime example, would be the way that the murder of Jane McRae was propagandized. She was a, you know, a young woman who was murdered by Mohawk Indians at a time when the British Army was making its way through um, upstate New York. And she wasn't a patriot, but she was portrayed as being killed because she was a patriot uh, by the Mohawks who were allied with the British. And there's been some uh, recent work on how when the fear of political violence was combined with race in this uh, revolutionary era, it became especially potent and contagious. And whether that's the uh, fear of indigenous peoples or of potential uh, uprisings of enslaved persons, I think... It's also indicative of how the Patriot movement was more than happy to uh, instill fear into their fellow colonists and shows how they used this uh, political violence, not only against their opposition, like we discussed, but also sort of to manage their own support. And, 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 and yet, at the same time, they also um, take great lengths within Boston to try and avoid... Um, adding to a spiral of violence, and that the you know, Adams and the famous story about the the careful organisation of the trial to to make sure that the soldiers received a a fair defence um, shows that it's more it is very complicated when we when we bring up the question of violence that what exactly is the violence of the the protest what is the violence that um, that exists on a governmental or or systemic level and and it requires quite a quite a careful reading i think of crowd action to be able to to make definitive action um definitive statements about the efficacy or otherwise of of violent protest so i think looking here um looking back from i guess the point of independence to the 17th century is I think it's important to highlight that I think that context is really important um, for one, when violence emerges as a political tactic 
um, and as you know, to be part of that toolkit that Ken um, mentioned that organizers, um, organizers and and popular people and and the, and the populace have access to, is really important. Um, you know, the Imperial Crisis, um, the the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War. These are one of the important things that. Uh, leads to the violence of the American Revolution, um, and we can go back to the Glorious Revolution and uh, the English Civil War and other things like that for the 17th century. But I also um, think that we need to, I think, look forward a little bit here and about the ways in which um, one of the things that's going to begin emerging during the American Revolution is a explicitly American state and its relationship to its own forms of political violence and popular political violence. And I think that that's going to be one of the more interesting things as we move uh, to take this contagion idea and some of the things that and context idea that we've talked about for the 17th and most of the 18th century as American states, both in the form, say, Virginia and Maryland or Massachusetts are emerging, but also the federal state are emerging and their relationship to their own state violence as political violence and popular political violence. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important point, and 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 I think it's I think it's good to 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 look forward here as we as we sort of conclude this the, the first part of this discussion. It's 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 probably worth pointing out that what what we've been talking about in terms of the era of the the coming of the revolution is really kind of an aberration in terms of quote-unquote American political violence, because as we go into the, the, the 19th century, we're going to see issues of race, of class, and ethnicity, and religion become central to the story of political violence again, as it had been in, in, the, in the, the late 17th century, as we sort of talked about. And I think Roy is right that one of the, one of the key factors there has to do with the state, and whether it's the federal government or the state governments, you know, almost always, you know, directly implicated in many of the the events that we're going to talk about in the the second part of this discussion. Well, while you're emphasizing some level of continuity of of themes over over a period of time, I do also want to emphasize um, some of the disjuncture just from the the perpetrators of of violence. Um, in that, a lot of the episodes that we've um, we've talked about thus far um it's kind of been assumed that the progenitors of the violence have been those that have directly opposed some form of government action that government action may well have been violent in and of itself but when we've talked about particular episodes of violence it's violence used to counteract um the the actions of government um and that becomes a very different question not just with the rise of the american state but also with the rise of a government that's predicated on the notion um at least the the theory that the people control the government um and how far can the the people oppress themselves um and what role does that leave for violence within a democratic republic and so some of the episodes of violence that we'll talk about um in in our ensuing discussion um will very much raise that question whereas in some ways there's a very clear legitimacy um even if it's a contested legitimacy of attacking government when other avenues have run out. Um, if, in theory, the vote is supposed to be the saviour of the democratic government and the guardian against corruption, 
is there still a place for violence and how do people and state respond when violence erupts? And I think an important question is the ways in which um, violence can back up or create democratic majorities is also really important um, once we move into the Republican period of American history, uh, the small r Republican period of American history, um, beginning in 1776. Um, you know, as we'll see in the 18th and 19th century, um, political violence is frequently accompanies state decisions, and it's sometimes n- somewhat non-state actors who are using violence to enforce uh, decisions made on, on the state level. Um, that's that's some that's somewhat different than certainly different than what was going on during the imperial crisis and the run up to independence, and pretty different than what was going on in the colonial period. I think both of you have a, have really important points, and it goes to this question about what is the role of political violence, especially popular political violence, in in a society predicated on popular sovereignty. Well, as we said at the start, there are many and myriad episodes of political violence in American history. And although we promised that this episode would get us from the 17th to the 19th century, perhaps we should have seen that our discussion was going to run on a little bit. Um, (laughs) Given that um, we've already talked at great length, we're going to cut this episode short here. We are going to continue our discussion. We are, we are not going to deprive you of our thoughts on late 18th and early 19th century violence. Um, however, that will be in the next um, edition of the podcast. Um, as a reminder, we have discussed some of these themes, not just in this episode, but also in our episode on popular protest in early America. So we do encourage you to go and find that in our existing podcast feed. For now, though, we're going to bring an end to this episode, which leaves me to thank Michael. Thank you, Ken. And to thank Roy. Thanks, Ken. For such an enjoyable and stimulating discussion. And to thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. All right, here we go.